really need to know more about how grassroots concerns about socioeconomic issues can become part of the discussion. And we need to explore how these issues can be related or should be related to those more conventional constitutional issues of sovereignty, modes of governance and rights in the future. Hello and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. This month we're considering an article entitled Participatory Constitutionalism and the Agenda for Change, Socioeconomic Issues in Irish Constitutional Debates. And this paper was co-authored by Dr Joanne McAvoy of the Department of Politics and International Relations at the University of Aberdeen, plus Jennifer Todd of University College Dublin and Dawn Walsh of University College Dublin. But it's Dr McAvoy, Joanne, who we have with us today to present the paper. And as a commentator, we have Dr. Fidel Maash, who's Professor of Politics at Ulster University and a member of the Transitional Justice Institute. So Joanne and Fidelma, you're most welcome. Joanne, maybe you could kick off by giving us a, a quick overview um, of the, the paper uh, and, 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 and how it is sort of organised and, and broken down. Thank you, Rory. Uh, thank you for the invitation to be on the podcast and thank you to Fidelma to, for also being here today. So yes, as you said, the paper is co-authored with Jennifer Todd and Don Walsh. Um, and this is based on two projects that we've conducted uh, over the past couple of years, funded by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade Reconciliation Fund. So this paper is interested in participatory constitutionalism particularly the role of citizens in shaping a process of constitutional discussion. We investigated how the participation of grassroots communities can shape the constitutional agenda, widening debate beyond institutional models to include everyday issues that are important to citizens. So we can, conducted parallel projects in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to explore how diverse communities, so for us, our groups were women's groups, migrant or ethnic minority communities and youth, approach the emergent constitutional discussion or debates in the wake of Brexit. We wanted to find out how engaged people are in discussion around the constitutional question, what issues are particularly important for them and how they might wish for a future constitutional process to unfold. So we suggest that while there's been quite a bit of theoretical discussion in the literature on the value of constitutional discussion, there's still much we don't know about participation and agenda, set it, agenda setting by citizens. So in particular, we wanted to know more about how different forms of participation and deliberation matter for the process and for the debate for citizen engagement. And we started from the position that there is a need to know more about how per popular participation can shape the constitutional agenda and how diverse groups or communities might prioritize a broad range of issues from unionist and nationalist group interests to wider public interests to minority rights and socioeconomic issues and so on. So overall, our article contributes to discussions and knowledge on processes of constitutional discussion in three ways. So it adds to knowledge on the impact of popular participation on the shaping of a constitutional agenda. 
And we do so by investigating grassroots views in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland to show how people in diverse communities think about constitutional discussion and how it might proceed in the years ahead. And the article also considers argument and evidence for codifying socioeconomic rights in constitutional change and suggests how this can be fed into future constitutional deliberation. Thank you indeed, Joanne. Tell me, I mean, tell me a bit more about the the groups who were involved in your in your study. You you said grassroots groups, but how far would you say are they kind of broadly representative of the community as a as a whole? Well, our research design really reflects our aim to explore how ordinary people define and engage with constitutional issues. And really, our intention here was to map a range of voices and concerns beyond unionism and nationalism. So we undertook um, engagement with uh, different women's groups across Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, um, also through umbrella organisations of ethnic minority communities uh, in the North and in the South, and through organisations representing youth groups. Um, So these communities are based Um, Across the two jurisdictions, we also spent quite a bit of time talking to women's groups along the Irish border. Uh, So we have a good geographical spread across the two jurisdictions and some concentration on the border. So what we did then, we undertook a series of uh, fairly lengthy focus groups and interviews with these groups, women's groups, ethnic minority organisations and youth, as well as interviews with uh, community organisations and politicians as well, north and south. So overall, um, around 10 focus groups were held. In addition to that, then there were a series of interviews with representatives um, of the main political parties, as well as political um, elites from from other groups, socialists, ecologists, and the Alliance Party. We conducted all of the interviews and focus groups via Zoom, given that this took place during the pandemic. We recorded all of the focus groups and interviews, transcribed them, they were anonymized, coded in in vivo and so on. So we did this research during the COVID pandemic. And it's interesting in that COVID made the interviewing process both harder in the sense that it was difficult, um, it was obviously impossible to to have face-to-face contact, but also easier in that we could hold multiple focus groups with people at a distance uh, from one another. So overall, we engaged with around 65 or so people, slightly more in the North, Um, And the way in which we approached it is that it was important for us to have discussions that were quite open. They were minimally structured around ideas of high politics, of constitutional discussion and North-South relations. And our questions in these uh, focus groups and interviews were framed in in a very exploratory way. We wanted to know where our our participants um, interested in participating in constitutional discussion. We wanted to know how would they like the process to proceed, and we wanted to know what, they, from their perspective, then what should be discussed or what should be on the agenda. Interesting. The politicians um, and you know the elites that you that you mentioned. Um, I mean, to what extent were they aware of the work that you were doing? You know, with the the grassroots organisations, and to what extent did you find that they were interested in in, in what was emerging from those focus groups, if if they were aware of it? So many of the politicians we interviewed also spoke to the importance of um, 
uncovering what ordinary people have to say about the process, how they approach this debate or discussion, where they are in relation to this discussion, and what are the issues that are important to them. And many of them, when we um, looked at the findings, were saying um, pretty much the same thing as our focus groups, that people are interested, want to talk about bread and butter issues and socioeconomic issues and so on. So there was an appetite on the part of politicians to find out more about what ordinary people have to say um, and an acknowledgement that if there is to be a process of discussion, then as many voices and interests and issues need to be taken on board. Thank you. Fidelma. Thanks, Rory. Joanne, first of all, congratulations uh, to you, Jennifer and Dawn on such a fantastic piece of work. I think you raise issues that we will be talking about in this area under this topic for many years to come. So if I can just share that with you, I read the article really closely because as you know, there is so much overlap between your own research and mine with um, Eilish Rooney and Joanna McMinn. But I, I want to open up one question with you that I think our projects combined are moving towards. So I could be wrong, but I think the question that all of us started off with was participation and how do you um, enable and facilitate participation among the grassroots. You, you, what method do you use? And you, you've spoken uh, there about those methods. But after reading your paper, I started to think we started off with this, but we're moving to another question. And for me, that question, if I combine what you're finding, what I'm finding, how our own agendas are changing in terms of what we're interested in. I, I think we're moving to, towards the concept of justice. And if I can explain to you where I find that in your um, paper, your inclusion of marginalized groups, um, you, you know, if we invoke um, Iris Marion Young, it is really a concern about justice through participation. And I, I was just wondering, do you have any reflections on that? I mean, as I say, I was thinking about what you were writing in the article and what I've been finding and thinking about how the research progresses. Uh, thanks, Fidelman. Thank you very much for the kind words um, as you started there. Um, so yes, we came at this from a similar um, starting point. And we came at it in thinking that, uh, or in knowing that we know what the dominant voices are in the debate, or in this emergent debate. We know that there is a constituency that wants to see um, a formal process of discussion. We know that for, on the part of other voices that there is reluctance and also uh, even opposition. But there, is, there are many other views out there. And those views, um, you mentioned Aris Marion Young, those views might be externally excluded from the debate. 
And as we've come later, laterally to think, but even in inclusion, there might still be forces of exclusion in that there's um, a failure for, to ensure substantive inclusion. Um, so really, the, the idea of, of justice, although we haven't really discussed our work in those terms, certainly I think speaks to that in that we were, what we wanted to do was to um, speak with groups who are relatively marginalized from mainstream constitutional politics, that there is a diversity of voices. And what does it mean then for groups who are relatively marginalized to find a voice, to have a voice? What kind of participatory process could facilitate that voice? What would be the obstacles to their participation? Um, as they see it in their own voices, how do they articulate those obstacles? What would be the priorities for them? And so that was this is essentially this paper in, in that what would be the agenda if they were to have an opportunity to shape that agenda, what might that agenda or menu of issues to dis be discussed uh, look like? So we hadn't come on it by thinking about justice, but I can see very much where you're coming from, and that might be a fruitful way to think about the synergies between our own work and your own work too. Thanks, Joanna. Just, just a point of clarification. Um, I think I know the answer, but I'm not sure. In you know, creating the focus groups, were you dealing mostly with existing organisations, existing groups, um, as opposed to a sort of almost semi-random selection of, of individuals from those categories that you mentioned? So we initially approached community organisations, umbrella organisations, who then acted as gatekeepers, if you like, in bringing people together for us. Um, so we worked very closely with them in um, making sure that the focus groups that we had, again, had a diversity of views and perspectives, different backgrounds, um, identity backgrounds, uh, geography, um, and also to reach um, disengaged um, marginalized um, people as well. So it was very much working in tandem with these organizations to ensure that that diversity um, and they acted as the gatekeepers in bringing people together. Yeah, understood. Well, maybe we can now move on to the principal findings that you drew from these groups. I mean, you've already, I think, given us a fairly broad hint um, that they aren't necessarily the same sorts of things that politicians and 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 others, you know, are highlighting. But uh, maybe you could tell us. So to provide an overview of the findings and the, the significance of the findings. Well, firstly, what we wanted to do was to ascertain the extent to which these groups felt that um, they were engaged in constitutional discussion. And what we found was that our community groups who participated in our focus groups were very much less inclined than politicians to engage with questions of constitutional structures, political arrangements, and so on. So there was a reluctance to talk about, as we might call the high politics of constitutional debate, as being very distant from people's reality. There was also some concern, um, some were fearful about how that debate might move ahead. Um, there was also emotions around sensitivities, um, about what that 
discussion might um, bring to the fore, as it were. For example, one suggested that heightened constitutional isn't necessarily a good thing. It's almost as though we're speaking about division again. So there was that kind of emotional aspect of and reluctance to engage with, let's say, political structures or, or very explicit constitutional debates. One of the key findings and related to that point is that people had a problem with how the constitutional discussion is uh, talked about in discursive uh, terms. The terminology of constitutional debate being problematic from their perspective and that it puts people off from engaging. And that was really important and we saw that right across our focus groups and interviews. Uh, people suggested that terms like United Ireland, that unification are very loaded terms, that people have a, uh, an important or even huge reaction to those terms. And these, these, uh, this terminology and the discursive language is very far removed from people's priority. And there was also a sense that when we talk of, about constitutional discussion in abstract terms and even indeed in ideological terms, people feel very removed and that it, these, this language doesn't speak to their own experience or their own everyday. At the same time, however, there was an interesting um, appetite for a discussion around North-South relations. So people were much more comfortable to talk about what happens cross-border, what should North-South cooperation look like in the years ahead and so on. But what we focused on in this paper is what were the priorities for people uh, in talking about North-South relations or talking about the constitutional issues. And it was clear that for participants and interviewees, they more frequently referred to uh, what we would term bread and butter issues, about socioeconomic issues, and they explained their prioritization of these issues by underlining then the impact that they have and on ordinary people on a day-to-day -day basis. And it was both the focus groups and interviews with community organizations and politicians who, who were saying that this was much more important to people in when it comes to talking about constitutional debate and North-South relations. So bread and butter issues were referred to quite often and in general terms. But in more specific terms, there was a lot of discussion about the provision of public services and in particular healthcare. So participants or research participants expressed a good deal of concern about what constitutional change would mean for the provision of healthcare on the island, given the existence of two very different models. The lack of knowledge, importantly, um, in each jurisdiction about how healthcare operates in the other. So there was um, some myths and, and misunderstandings about how healthcare operates in the other jurisdiction. People were concerned, uh, unsurprisingly, about the potential cost of healthcare. Um, with constitutional change, uh, for example, at the point of access, and some people suggested that any increased cost in accessing healthcare would negatively impact those already on the poverty line. So in addition to those issues around public um, services, social services, and in particular healthcare rights issues also appeared as important, for example, gender and reproductive rights. And also these were very much discussed in experiential and, and personal ways as issues relevant to the constitutional question. 
So what we're saying in the paper is that it's not that participants failed or didn't want to engage with general constitutional ideas. They didn't want to simply avoid the issues, but it was the way in which the constitutional discussion is framed that they have difficulty with um, and that the, the way in which the discussion is framed doesn't speak to their own everyday experience. No, that's that's extremely interesting. I mean, just to un- unpack something a, a bit, I mean, or a couple of things. First of all, when you say that some people found terms like United Ireland, unification and so on, loaded or difficult, I mean, was that essentially coming from participants of, of you know, of a broadly unionist background or, or was it a more generally felt issue? It was very much across the board. And this is what we found um, speaking to two groups who were mixed in their in their configuration in the, in the focus groups. But I would say mostly people had um, some concern over a rush to talk about United Ireland and unification in, in given concerns and that they would prefer to talk about a future on the island um, and, and to fr- talk about constitutional issues around those yeah. socioeconomic bread and butter issues that are p- people's priorities. No, that, exactly. No, that, that's very interesting. Sorry, Fidelma, you wanted to come in there? That was one of uh, one of the areas that I was I was greatly interested in um, when I read the article, Joanne. I think it sort of supported my conclusions from my own work in terms of thinking about, well, look, where does the creativity in this debate come from? You know, as your participants and my participants are saying, the, the boundaries of this debate, the terminology of, of this debate ha, has already been set. Uh, so what I started to think about whenever I read those sections in your, your paper was, well, really, are we looking at the bottom up to start to bring the perspective the knowledge, the creativity, to reshape the debate in a different way. And certainly one way that your participants did reshape it was they moved socioeconomic issues and rights up to the top of the agenda, not as a secondary concern that will sort out after unification is agreed or after we have a, a border poll. I think from reading your article, the agenda that they want is an agenda that sets those questions as the primary questions in the debate, if you understand me. No, absolutely, um, Fidelma. There was a real uh, um, concern to reshape and reframe the debate. So it's not a rejection of the debate, but it's the way in which it's being framed. And we found it very interesting in that an idea kept coming up from people to suggest what is required is not a rush towards talking about institutional configurations and political arrangements. What we need is what they termed a pre-conversation. So a pre-conversation about how a better future and what that might happen and what that might look like so as an opportunity in a way to to sort out some policy problems that make people's lives improve people's lives and make them better so it was that idea of having a pre-conversation 
in a way that might then serve to shape and reframe the debate. And certainly then to ensure that a focus on uh, on socioeconomic issues is not an add-on to be discussed once people decide on institutional models, but should be at the heart of thinking about the future. Just, I mean, I, I asked myself the question, again, I entirely understand why for many participants these socioeconomic questions are the ones which, which matter most to them. But again, I, I wonder, or I ask myself, is it that they want to see progress on these questions almost irrespective, if you like, of whatever constitutional framework you're you're talking about. So in other words, or to, or to put it another way, is it that if there were, um, you know, a, a, a sharpening of the debate and a referendum, that it is that they would be open to, to seeing, as it were, which side of the argument was able to offer them a better a better future um, in regard to their own preoccupations. I suppose I'm just trying to disentangle the the, the socioeconomic debate uh, from the constitutional institutional debate, uh, and you know, in a way, could these discussions occur almost irrespective, as I say, of whether or not there was a a constitutional debate at the same time? Well, I think for our research participants, they would, irrespective of the debate and discussion about Northern Ireland's constitutional future, there would be a concern and a desire to talk about these policy areas, how to make, how to improve our society, how to make lives uh, better for people. But they saw the discussion um, certainly around North-South relations and cooperation and that wider debate uh, as an opportunity to tackle some of the issues as a Um, a consideration that that there may well be ways in which to bring about change through constitutional change. So it was both linked to, potentially linked to constitutional change. What would a, a, a new Ireland look like was very much linked to how our lives could be improved, how our society could be improved. So we didn't get to what, if there were to be a border poll soon, how would people then seek to to decide on, on where they would fall, uh, either in support or in opposition to change? So I suppose, though, you know, a, a big question then would be, I, again, though I imagine, just you know, how plausible and firmly rooted you know would the proposals be of you know from different sides? I mean, I, one can assume, I suppose. And I'm just thinking it out here, that of course it would be in the interest of both sides to 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 promise lands of milk and and honey, and I suppose it would be up to the um, participants uh, to ask themselves the question: Well, how 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 credible is 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 this? I wanted to ask you: um, Any significant differences between your northern and your southern participants um, in their in their views? No, not really. No, there was convergence across the two jurisdictions. Many of our, our focus groups were cross-border, but we had people from um, north and south. And in speaking to the politicians too, there was pretty much convergence on what they had to say. There was, and I suppose in the focus groups, 
when some people were talking about the memories of the past and their concerns about how a discussion on uh, how a constitutional discussion might evoke some memories some trauma of the past. Others, maybe from the South, who hadn't experienced the same trauma or difficulties through the troubles then deferred to that position. You know, that, that was not necessarily their experience. So there was, uh, from different ex experiences, there was a bit of difference. But overall, there was convergence around the need for a constitutional discussion to, to focus on socioeconomic issues and also to proceed in a way that took time, that it was, should not be a rushed process, that, sh that there should be a provision of uh, impartial or neutral information. So those messages were also similar coming from both jurisdictions. Fidelma. Just just to pick up on your point there as well, um, Rory, I, I, I did note in the article there, there was that reference to information. And I, I suppose what Rory is suggesting is that you can promise people uh, lots of things, but you don't actually deliver. But I think to, to answer you, Rory, I think it, what I find in Dawn's paper and what I find in my own research is that People are very determined that before they make any kind of decision, they must have the right information. And that, that information must be accessible and it must be valid. So, you know, I, I do think there is an understanding that it is, you know, data and uh, can be easily man manipulated to suggest different things. But I think I think people are very aware of that, especially after Brexit. I think they understand that the information that we have, we have to be very, very careful of. But the other question that came to mind was when we're talking about possible futures, no one seems to be making the case for the union in terms of socioeconomic rights or a culture of rights or, you know, anything else, really. Yeah, well, that's, well, that's an interesting point. I, I think there are, yeah, there are you know, regularly enough references, but in very broad headline terms about the, the benefits uh, but at the same time, you know, maybe not a lot of, of substance or detail. But on the other side of the argument as well, uh, at times one can get the impression that, uh, you know, that the arrival of United Ireland will sort of act miraculously upon all, all sorts of, of issues that we that, that we have. Of course, one of the purposes of the whole Aaron's project, we're not aiming to produce, you know, material which is necessarily, you know, to be read by the public as a whole unless they, they wish to. But I think that some of our articles in particular, I hope, will provide a sort of a quarry um, from which things messages can be distilled and, and, and facts can be can be presented. Um, I wanted to turn then, as we move on, um, Joanne, to the sort of other part of your paper, which is in a way about the whole question of the incorporation of socioeconomic rights into constitutional system. And of course, that's another... Um, another big uh, debate because in a previous podcast I remember one of the participants saying the constitutional change um, 
would maybe be most effective if it were minimalist. In other words, if it only did what it absolutely had to do and leaving other questions for debate. And then there are others who will argue this is, would be a great opportunity to recast certainly the constitution of the of the Republic. But another thing you sort of suggested in your in your paper, which I found interesting, and you know, there is a very widespread debate about socioeconomic rights, but you suggested that there was a kind of a difference it, perhaps in expectations or um, or understandings between the two jurisdictions in terms of, of, of the sort of practices and, and, and customs that have grown up? Yes. So the, in the second part of our, our article, we looked at um, the role of socioeconomic issues in constitutional debate by, by looking at the context across the two uh, jurisdictions uh, by comparing them a little bit. And then we moved on um, to consider future research. So what we wanted to do was to address the implications of our findings, to ask in what ways are socioeconomic issues of constitutional importance um, to the two jurisdictions? And what ways does the discussion of them then lead into constitutional issues? So what we did here is we looked at both um, jurisdictions to see what's the same and uh, what looks different. And in the case of Northern Ireland, then, what we're arguing or suggesting is that claims for socioeconomic rights are treated um, quite differently from the South. For example, the, the Good Friday Agreement provided for some harmonization of rights and equality across the, the island, although the extent to which that's been achieved, of course, is, is disputable. But there's a strong tradition in, in Northern Ireland for claiming socioeconomic rights, going back to the civil rights movement. So if there is a strong rights culture that is more pervasive in the North. And there has been some research that's looked at um, the extent to which people would want to see socioeconomic um, issues and rights codified in the future um, constitution. So there is a, a, a broad base in, of population in the North who would support that uh, general principle, so the widespread support for legally codifying and implementing socioeconomic rights. The practice in the South and the Republic of Ireland has been quite different. There is a, a strong constitutional tradition, um, but it's been a, a minority argument that socioeconomic rights and gender and reproductive rights should be included in a, in a radically updated constitution. Even though socioeconomic issues are very high on the agenda in the South, particularly in relation to housing and health, there's still considerable reluctance to put new substantive rights into the constitution. And there's judicial reluctance too to constitutionalize socioeconomic rights or to open the socioeconomic arena to judicial interpretation. So what we're suggesting here is that that means then that there may well be potential for some con um, contention over socioeconomic issues, should there be any constitutional change in the future. That there are very different institutional configurations, different legal traditions, different political cultures, both North and South, which have led then to very quite different perspectives on socioeconomic provisions and rights. And that might well then become, most likely would become an issue in the event of or in discussion of constitutional change. So we don't pursue the argument any further in the paper. We simply want to know that there are these you know, differences of experience and differences of uh, perspectives. And then that, that again feeds into the importance of looking more holistically at these socioeconomic issues in the discussion about any potential change. 
I think Fidelma wants to have a word. Um, yeah, I find that aspect of the paper really fascinating, uh, Joanne. And um, just thinking about uh, the agreement for me, but then I'm very negative on this issue. For me, the agreement is a masterclass in how not to uh, protect rights, particularly those of women, sexual and gender minorities, and also uh, social rights. And I'll tell you why. If we take the example of gender and the work that the Northern Ireland Women's Coalition did in being able to insert that principle of the right of women to participate in political life, there were no mechanisms there was no follow-up, there was no monitoring. So for me, that, that, that part of your paper was actually very instructive as we, we start to think perhaps more about how you codify socioeconomic rights and the rights of historically excluded minorities. Now, in Northern Ireland, rights is part of an extended, expanded vision of peace building. So peace building had that narrow frame for a very long time and it was about ethno-nationalist rights. But of course, those from the bottom have now pushed the agenda of peace building significantly broader. And I think those finer distinctions that you raise about North and South, I find those very, very useful and, and very instructive and informative. But I think there, there may be some crossover in terms of priorities. I mean, if you look at the electoral success of parties like Sinn Féin, you, you know, they're obviously speaking um, directly to those issues, socioeconomic issues, and and perhaps what we understand as as rights of citizenship as well. So, oh, I'm not sure if there maybe is, you know, maybe some kind of bridge across in terms of of a rights culture and socioeconomic rights and how those work. Uh, in terms of the, the, the fabric of politics and the two jurisdictions, if you like. No, I, no, I mean, a couple of responses for me. I mean, first of all, yeah, I, I mean, throughout my, my career in the civil service in the Department of Foreign Affairs, I could observe just how sensitive this question of socioeconomic rights would be. I mean, there were many international treaties and conventions which, you know, arose for a signature or ratification, and I can remember one in particular, the Convention on the Rights of People with Disabilities, um, and you know the other parts of the civil service were extremely reluctant uh, to move ahead on on that, precisely because they they feared that you there could be financial implications, but also a sort of a lack of you know an incapacity of the political system to make decisions that judges would be then ruling on, on these mm. questions. Second point, actually, interesting what you say about the agreement, because I've just been reflecting on this myself in another arena. I'll be talking about some of the lessons of the Good Friday Agreement negotiations from my own point of view. And I think you're entirely right, in fact, because 
the focus, for understandable reasons perhaps, was overwhelmingly on constitutional, institutional questions and then things like prisoners and decommissioning and, and so on. Um, and I think on the whole, there may have been a sense, A, not just questions of rights, but questions of reconciliation, of anti-sectarianism um, and so on, where where things which would kind of follow um, from the construction of political institutions. Uh, and secondly, I don't remember the Women's Coalition said this at a meeting I was at recently, that, of course, these were really regarded as sort of soft issues or second order issues or things which weren't really so critical. Um, and uh, that's a, a fascinating, you know, an interesting perspective that you have. And it's one which I would to a considerable degree share whether it would have been possible to agree, uh, you know, in in more substance in, in the in the particular context we were in. I don't know, but it's a it's a fascinating question all the same, you know. Well, when I was reading the article, uh, another issue that, that came to mind <laughs> is what are the limits of rights within what are effectively neoliberal societies? You know, both jurisdictions are based around those principles. So, I mean, even how wide can we take it? You know, so... I know we don't have time to talk about that today, <laughs> but that was one of the that was one of the things that did pop into my mind. Yeah, well, in a way, the socio the question of social of socioeconomic rights and their expression in constitutions. I mean, it's an issue of great importance, irrespective of of whether or not you you frame it as part of a you know a constitutional debate in the Irish sense. Joanne, just we're we're coming to the end of our time, so just to ask you, I mean, what sort of lessons would you take from your paper? Um, if you were, you know, invited to to give policymakers, political leaders, a a quick a quick briefing on what they should be doing, um, and secondly, how do you think the kind of the work that you've been doing might sit within a, a broader sort of deliberative process through a citizens' assembly, for example? I mean, is there a risk again that these marginalised, I mean, groups are sort of pushed to to one side? So, in terms of policy, policy thinking and potential lessons for policymakers. I think the key takeaway from the article is that it speaks to the importance of if there should be or there, there would be any potential formal process of constitutional discussion and deliberation being designed in ways that provide opportunities for the public to become engaged. So the questions, of course, about how that might that process could be designed or should be designed. But the lesson is that in designing such a process, there ought to be built into that process opportunities for the public, for citizens to either set or to influence the agenda, to create space for issues that might not necessarily reflect where political elites are or the preferred menu of choices of importance for political elites. So it's really about considering the ways in which any potential formal process um, of dialogue, discussion, and deliberation should be formed or should be designed. That surely a takeaway from the research is that it should be designed in ways that allow and facilitate participation and participation in ways that allow people to say what's important to them and what should be discussed. And then, you know, the, the other takeaway or other, uh, say, implication for policy is that we need to know a lot more 
really need to know more about how grassroots concerns about socioeconomic issues can become part of the discussion. And we need to explore, certainly from the discussion that we've had this afternoon, how these issues can be related or should be related to those more conventional constitutional issues of sovereignty, modes of governance and rights in the future. So they, that, those might seem quite broad and opaque uh, lessons, but it's about um, approaching a potential process in a way that facilitates participation around what's important for people, for people to articulate themselves in their own voices what's important to them. Thank you very much, Joanne. As I say, we don't have time to go on any further, but just to reiterate one other point which you made earlier on, which I thought was very interesting, the the, the great deal of attention which the participants would pay to the existing state of North-South relations uh, and the need to to, to build on, on, on them. Um, and, of course, this chimes quite well with what the, the Taoiseach is trying to do um, through his shared island initiative, which is to try to take these questions in a way out of a more conventional constitutional frame, at least for the time being. But that's another day's discussion, maybe. So, Joanne McAvoy and um, Fidelma Ash, thank you both so much for joining me this afternoon. It was a very rich and stimulating discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Rory. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you very much, Fidelma. Thank you, Rory. Aaron's It's a Joint Project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier all-island scholarly institution, and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South, in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you.